It has often been said that only the good die young. And most of you are old enough to understand that cliche is not completely accurate, is it? Many people die young that have not in any shape, form, or fashion earned the title of good. On the other hand, many good person has seemed to die, as we say, before his or her time. And when it happens, we cannot help, it seems, to stop and ask the question, why? In our look at the great hymns of faith today, we're going to look at Holy, 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 my second favorite hymn. Um, and I want you to consider with this idea of only the good die young, the man who wrote this incredibly amazing, wonderful song. Reginald Aber, Aber, he was born in Cheshire, England, April 21st, 1783, to a wealthy, educated family. Now, I know we think our kids are incredibly special, and they are. We think our kids may be the smartest in the world, or perhaps you're arrogant enough to think you were. But let me humble you a moment. Reginald read through the entire Bible by the age of five. Now, if that's not impressive enough, he translated a Latin classic work of literature into English at the ripe old age of seven. Man, obviously he had a brilliant mind. He entered Oxford University at 17 and won two awards for poetry during his time there. After his graduation, he became the rector of his father's church in Hodnet, west of England, where he remained for 16 years. Throughout his ministry, he was known as a man of refinement, a man of noble Christian character. His chance at fame came in 1823 when he was sent to India to serve as the Bishop of Calcutta. Aber was actually the Anglican bishop over all of British India from 1823 to 1826. Only three years. Not nearly the length of service of a William Carey or Adoniram Judson. But he worked tirelessly in those three years. He had opened a training school for local clergy. He traveled extensively around India preaching the gospel. He also embodied the very heart of 19th century British missionary thought, uh, which purpose, the idea was Christians in Great Britain believed they had a God-called mandate to take the gospel into all the world. This is reflected in one of his other famous hymns from Greenland's Icy Mountain. He continued to write a few hymns while he was in India, but most of what he wrote was actually during his service at Hodnet. And the pressures of service in India wore heavily on him. One Sunday morning, after preaching to a large outdoor crowd, he was also a brave man, preaching on the evils of the caste system in India, the very strict division of social status. After he preached, 
He evidently suffered a stroke and died. He was only 43 years old. Now, some people may think that he didn't accomplish much. After all, like I said, he wasn't there for decades like William Carey or Adoniram Judson or the decades that Lottie Moon was in China. Just three years. And the truth is, he's not well known. Unless you are familiar with his hymns or his service in, in India, you probably never heard of him. And I'm pretty sure, if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you knew who wrote Holy, Holy, Holy? There may not be anybody raise their hand. Unless you're one of those who like to open the Baptist hymnal and look at the very bottom of a song and see who wrote it. That's how you might have heard of him. So when you look at the grand scheme of things, dying in his early 40s, only after a a short stint in India, nobody knowing who his name. Some might say that he wasted his life in a foreign land. That if he had stayed in England, he may have lived a long and healthy life and accomplished much for the Lord. But before you allow yourself to think that, Stop for one moment. This man wrote, Holy, Holy, Holy. The song is almost 200 years old now. And there's no way of gauging how many Christians across denominational lines, across language barriers, have sung this majestic, wonderful song. It's a sad note to it. It was written, he wrote it to, intending it to be sung on Trinity Sunday in Hodnet. But the Anglican hierarchy at that time said the only thing that you were supposed to sing in church were the Psalms. So this great work of God was not allowed to be sung in his homeland for a very long time. Trinity Sunday occurs eight weeks after Easter. And you can probably guess what it affirms. The eternal triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Angel asked, why holy, holy, holy? There's a lot of speculation, but Abar apparently understood, as many do, in the book of Revelation, the declaration of holy, holy of holy, brings to our mind, it may have been in his heart, God the Father is holy. God the Son is holy. God, the Spirit is holy. The man who wrote it was uh, the, the tune is a man by the name of John Dykes. He read the poem, loved it, had to write the music for it. And he entitled the tune Nicaea. Now, some of you may know what the significance of that is. But Nicaea was the first ecumenical council of the church to fight the very first major heresy showing up in Christianity. And it fully affirmed the complete and total deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. This song, written by a young man who has touched hearts for essentially centuries. Anybody who would say that's meaningless, well, It's a horrible thing to even think. 
He's touched people far more deeply than most ever will. And the text that inspired this song, and as we look at the text, you will see how much he drew directly from this passage of Scripture into his song. So I invite you to stand as we look at Revelation 4, 1 through 11. One of the most glorious passages in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard, and in the book of Revelation the first voice he hears is the voice of Jesus. The first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the throne were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals and thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him, who is seated on the throne and worship Him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You may be seated. Almighty God, speak to our hearts now. Open our hearts. There's so much to unpack in this passage of Scripture. Folks, it could take me weeks to cover this passage of Scripture. And there's just so much. I want to briefly share a few of the things of interest and debate before I get to the heart of the text for what we need to hear today. First, John, not unlike Paul, in the 2 Corinthians 12, talks about being caught up into the third heaven. 
John is caught up to be given a vision. He is in the Spirit, he says. And he's before the very throne room of God. He does not describe God. He doesn't say he looks like an old man sitting on the throne. Instead, he talks about jewels. And Angel's right. We don't know for sure what these jewels are. Jasper is most likely not the stone we call Jasper today. It was probably clear. The general thought is it may have been like a diamond. Carnelian is red, perhaps a ruby. And the rainbow that looks like an emerald surrounding the throne, possibly echoing back to the covenant God made with Noah. And then, the sounds and the flashes of lightning, the peals of thunder. Echoing back to Mount Sinai when God showed Himself to the people of Israel. And then He saw heavenly creatures. Similar in ways both to the cherubim of Ezekiel 10 and the seraphim of Isaiah 6. And people debate, well which was it? Cherubim or seraphim? And John doesn't classify them. I will point out that what they say is almost verbatim to what the seraphim say. In Isaiah 6. He saw 24 elders on the throne. Surrounding the throne. And there are people who will say, I know exactly who that is. Some will argue that they're angelic beings. Some will say it's the 12 patriarchs of Israel. Some will say, added to them, the 12 apostles. Others will say it just, it represents all of the people of God from all the ages. But John doesn't specify. And then the seven spirits of God. That is so weird. How many spirits of God do we normally think of? Come on, you can say it. Well, no, when we, when we use spirit, we normally think of who? The Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, the prophet wrote about the spirits that are going to Come upon the Messiah, resting on Messiah. And everyone agrees this is the Holy Spirit of God. But he talks about the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is a symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. The glory of God was manifested in such an incredible way. Maybe someday in a class we'll take a look at all this and try to get much more detail. But today, I don't want to focus on what John saw, as beautiful as it is described. I want us to focus on what he heard. What he heard are two doxologies. Two songs of praise. One from the heavenly creatures and one from the elders. And as we look at this text and we think of the song that grew out of it, I want you to know God is worthy of our highest offering of praise. And as we look at the text, we will discover some of the most incredible characteristics, sometimes called attributes of God within the Word. And let's pray that by the time we're through, we're really ready to praise the Lord.
First of all, God is holy. Some believe this is the primary attribute of God. I tend to lean on that direction. And everything grows out of His holiness. But when you look at what is said, the cry, holy, 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 stresses the biblical truth of God's otherness. Now what I mean by that is what these children said. That God is set apart. God is different from us. That is the basic concept of the word holy. Different. And when we cry out that God is holy, we are saying, we are saying He is not like us. And the Bible points to this. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that's a major idea. If all we could say about God is holy, then we wouldn't know anything else to say. Because that would mean God is beyond our reach. But God has stooped to let us hear Him. And along with the idea of separation, there came to be an ethical side of holiness. It became very prominent during the prophets. In fact, again, from Isaiah 5.16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows Himself holy in righteousness. And this idea of holiness had to have reached John in a very powerful way. It's been pointed out, Leon Morris has done a great job, that the world John lived in was very much like our world. A world of evil, where it is rampant, and apparently, all-powerful. Everywhere you look, evil and sin. Goodness was weak and frustrated. But John's very first vision of God in heaven shows that these appearances are deceptive. The world may be evil, but God is holy. That had to have brought me brought comfort and assurance and power and wonder to the Apostle. The Holy One of Israel, Isaiah's favorite term for God, the Holy One of Israel is still on His throne. Emperor Domitian has not knocked Him off. God is holy. And when we look at this, we realize God alone has that absolute sense of holiness. Did you hear Abraham's words? Only thou art holy. That is the concept of God. He alone has the absolute sense. When I talk about us being a holy people, that Peter calls us in his letter, we are holy only in that we have derived it from God. God has given us holiness. God is creating holiness within us. God alone is holy. Samuel wrote in 1 Samuel 2.2, there is none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. No one is holy like God. So does that mean 
righteousness and humanity is impossible? No. 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 Three times for emphasis. No. Because God who is holy calls us to be holy. That's why we looked at some of those texts in our responsive reading. God is saying to us, I'm holy, you be holy. And it's echoed in the Old Test- in the New Testament as well. And in His grace and mercy, He can bring righteousness into our lives. Friends, our God is good and as we yield ourselves into His control, as we trust in the salvation wrought by the saving act of Jesus Christ, we can come to know righteousness. And it will sustain us. During all the evil days, knowing that God is holy gives us strength. And this difference in God is to move us into reverence at His presence. When people tell me they had a really good worship experience in church, I'm always a little bit curious to ask them, what do you mean? Because I'm not always sure we know what we mean. And it's been pointed out, think of everything John said, how beautiful it was. How absolutely amazing it had to have been. Think of what he heard and how it must have touched him and, and moved him greatly. But everything John sees and hears is not so he can say, man, that was a really cool worship experience. I really loved the music this week. And the lighting was great. It caused, it kind of induced us into this spiritual mood. The whole point is God. The whole point is God. And when we come to worship, it shouldn't matter what songs we're singing. Although, once again, great choice of songs today. We shouldn't need mood lighting. And worship isn't about whether or not I tell a really good illustration. Our focus is to be on God. And our hearts are lifted up. Because the Lord God Almighty is holy. And He is with us right now. And if that does not elicit praise, shame on us. We should never lose sight that the Holy One of Israel is the one we worship. So God is holy. And if I had nothing else to say, that's a big amen. But there's more. Because John's words reveal to us God is all-powerful. The angelic beings, these heavenly creatures, cry out a very important phrase, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Now that phrase, Lord God Almighty, shows up in the Old Testament a pretty good bit. The book of Revelation is the only place you'll find it in the Bible. In the New Testament portion of our Bible. The only place. And it is used six times exactly the Lord God Almighty. Three more times, 
there are variations. Focus maybe just on God Almighty or Almighty. So when John, the Spirit of God leads John to see and hear and write that God is the Lord God Almighty nine times in all, in one book, it ought to get our attention. Now the word Almighty literally means all-powerful. The Luanite Greek-English lexicon that doesn't just look at a definition, tries to catch the sense. And they point out in some languages you might say that God is the one who controls everything. Now John is looking, literally, he didn't know this, but centuries into the future. But we cannot escape John's context. When he had this vision, he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled, cut off from everybody he loves, with no contact with people he can share the gospel with. Why? Because the Roman Emperor Domitian, a very evil man, one of the first of the Roman emperors that actually said you have to burn incense and say Caesar is Lord. And as a follower of Christ, John couldn't do that. For only Jesus is Lord. So he is essentially locked up and thrown away and the key has gone away. Cast aside an enemy of the state. And John hears in heaven alone only God is Almighty. Not Domitian. The Roman Empire has not knocked him off the throne. And nobody in this world, no matter how evil you may think, they're going to usurp God. He alone is Almighty. And the rest of the book of Revelation affirms this. God reigns. Kingdoms will come and go and they will cry out against God. We see this in Psalm 2. Verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His annoying, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Folks, Psalm 2, 1 through 3 is a good description of the human race. Dating all the way back to Adam and Eve. When they made the decision, God, we know what you said, but we're choosing to do what we want. Because we want to be like you. And ever since, the human race has raged against God. But we are told here, God Almighty reigns. And one day, He will put a stop to all this. The verses immediately following, 1-3 through in Psalm 2. Four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. If you've ever been attacked by a two year old, it's kind of funny. He laughs. He, the Lord, holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God Almighty is on His throne. And it doesn't matter how much the world rages. 
John heard that, and I believe it sustained him for the rest of his life. And the very book of Revelation we're in climaxes with this truth. Revelation 19.6 Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Folks, the times in this world when it seems that evil is winning are illusions. When we think that evil is winning the day, it's not the truth. I'm not trying to dismiss the evil of this world, the pain and sufferings. We prayed for people for 20 years, over 20 years have been suffering the loss of grief. Evil does seem to prevail. And it's very easy to give up. But we can't. One day all of existence will know the truth. Paul writes about that day in the great Christ hymn of Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 9-11. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now for some it's going to be a resignation. We were wrong. But for those who know Christ, it's going to be a shout of joy. He is Lord and now the entire universe knows. Folks, that assurance gives us reason. That assurance that He is almighty on His throne gives us reason to shout with joy. The Lord God Almighty reigns. March 23rd, 1743, when Handel's The Messiah was first performed publicly in London. The king and queen are present for the performance in a huge hall with a great audience. And it is reported that when the Hallelujah Chorus began to be sung, with its majestic words, based on Revelation 19.6, For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The entire crowd, including king and queen, rose to their feet in sheer joy and exubilation for the whole chorus. And the hallelujah chorus is not short. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And they stood. And from that day till this, If you're in a public performance of the Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus is sung, stand up even if no one else knows the tradition. It is joy. It is joy. Wonderful. God is holy. God is all-powerful. And then there's more. God is everlasting. More and more. What does it mean for them to say who is and who was, who is and who is to come? That He is forever and ever. It's not just talking about His eternity. It is telling us, and for all who will hear, He, God, has proven Himself faithful. This is the thrust. 
who He was, who He is, and who He is coming. He is God. It is the thrust of the name. Moses asked God, Who do I say send me? Tell them I am that I am. The covenant name of Yahweh. And folks, it is the affirmation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 God is the one who is everlasting. And when it says He is forever and forever, it literally means from ages to the ages. Now we don't know for sure, and I hope your pastor doesn't disappoint you here, It depends on when I read this passage who I think the 24 elders are. Because sometimes the the argument that they're the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles, I think, that makes sense. And other times it's angelic beings and other times it's just a whole... So, I'm not absolutely sure who they are. If John had given us a footnote, it would have helped. But whoever they are, when they hear this, The Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Their reaction is clear. These 24 beings seated at the throne room on their own thrones fall down before God. They take their crowns off of their head and they cast them at His feet. Don't worry about how many stars are in your crown. Because I'm pretty sure when we get to glory we're going to throw them at His feet too. They fall down and worship. And they begin their own song of praise. What this means for you and me, we need not worry that He will fail us. He remains steadfast, true to His character in every way. Our God remains faithful to the covenant He's made with His people. He remains faithful to His covenant love. And I will admit, He doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want, right? He doesn't always give us what we wish, but He is always working for our good. His grace will sustain us in time of weakness. His peace can rule our hearts in times of distress. His compassion offers us forgiveness in times of our failure. And the promise that He who was and is And is coming. We have the promise that one day He is coming. And we'll draw all this to a close and we'll establish His kingdom forever and ever. Amen. And we will be with Him forever. Such faithfulness deserves our praise. We can offer God all of our love because we know forever and always He is offering us all of His love. We can cast ourselves into His everlasting loving arms, sharing with Him the adoration and praise He deserves because He will forever be true. We can trust Him. I both love and cringe at the verse that says, He is not a man that He should lie. I love that God doesn't lie I hate that that's what we're known for. So God is holy. God is all-powerful. 
God is faithful. So amen, we can pack our stuff and go home, right? No, because there's more. God is creator. He is creator. So when we look at this, quite literally, bookend between the book of Genesis and Revelation, every other passage of Scripture, in one way or another, affirms the truth that God has set all of this in motion. The Bible affirms that everything that exists owes that existence to God. Genesis. By the way, if you want to know what the Hebrew title for Genesis is, it's not Genesis. It's Bereshit. That doesn't help much. So I'll tell you. The title for Genesis is In the Beginning. And Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we flip over to the New Testament. And in that amazing thing, God in three persons, my favorite quote about the Trinity is, he who denies the Trinity is in danger of losing his soul. He tries to understand the Trinity is in danger of losing his mind. It's a lot deeper than us. But in John 1, 1-3, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him it was not anything made that was made. Well, Danny, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, Genesis tells us that the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. God is Creator. And creatures worship God. From the heavenly creatures to those who come to know Him. And we don't need a reason. To worship and praise God is just to acknowledge He is majestic. He is holy. He is righteous. He is glory. And that alone is enough to worship Him. But isn't it great that God does give us reasons? And in our text, the immediate reason he has created everything. And the elders use a rather poetic way of saying it. But God has created everything by His will. And because of that, all of creation owes its existence to Him. Now, we can do a lot of things. God has given us a brain. We need to use it. We can take something that's already here and alter it and change it and use it for our good. But we cannot create. We cannot do what God does. The Latin phrase is creation ex nihilo. From nothing. God just makes. And the truth that says in the very realist sense Everything in this world owes its existence to God and belongs to God. And as such, folks, He has the right to call us into lives which will bring glory to His name. When the human race decides to walk away from God, it brings a great downfall. Adam and Eve made that choice in Eden. 
and introduced sin into a world. And every generation since that moment on, humanity has chosen time and again to think it knows better than its creator. But I want to alert you to something. There's something worse than a lost world who refused to acknowledge its creator. Because it's not only lost humanity that does it. We do it. Those of us who know God. Not only as creator, but redeemer. And you say, I would never ignore God. Well, you should know by now, I'm not going to say we ignore God without some ammo behind me. You never ignore God. Love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Do not return evil for evil. How about, you shall be my disciples. You shall be my witnesses. How about, go and make disciples. And when we think, but you don't, Danny, they hurt me. I have a right to hate them. If you're a child of God, you don't. You've given up that right. Danny, I can't share my faith. I might be rejected. Well, Jesus said you will be my witness. I can't turn the other cheek. And folks, it is in, not in the nature as sweet and wonderful and cuddly you may think I am. It is not in my nature to turn the other cheek. But it is my call from Christ. And when we lose sight of His will, well, the book of Hebrews tells us what happened. Hebrews 12, read it very carefully. God disciplines His children. The fact that He gives life to us is reason enough to honor Him. And then here comes, for me, what may be the strangest statement made. The 24 elders, as they cast their crowns before God, say, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. When we look at all of the verses, it's clear. God already has glory, honor, and power. How can we give to Him something He already has? The key is in those heavenly creatures and the 24 elders. Folks, they are in heaven. They are in a glorified state, whatever it may be. And they are yielding everything they have to the worship of God. We are created in the image of God. While it may be marred because of sin, as Christians we've been renewed. Everything that is good Everything that could be seen as glory. Everything that we have in resemblance of power in our lives comes to us from God. And what are we supposed to do with it? Give it back to Him. I am who I am because of you, O oh God. And now, I give my life, my love, my service, my adoration, my praise, I give it all to you.
So today, let's give our highest praise to God. The God who is all-powerful. The God who is all-faithful. The God who is our maker. The God who is holy, holy, holy. Folks, if we hear these words and we let them come into our lives and we understand and embrace them, folks, our lives are lives of praise. Right here, right now. I know the singing part's over. I know the stuff we normally think of worship is over, but folks, right here, right now, we need to give praise to the God, our Maker. He is holy, powerful, righteous, faithful. Everything about my life that is worthwhile comes from His hand. So may God fill our hearts with praise today. Whatever is out there ahead of us, whatever is waiting beyond these walls, God is on His throne. And the Holy One of Israel walks with us.